When it comes to faith, sometimes it can be tough to get answers to our questions. How do we know God is real? Where did the Bible come from? What happens when we die? I'm Jeremiah Johnston, and I founded an organization called the Christian Thinkers Society to help people deal with questions just like these. Far too often, these are questions that people are afraid to ask. They don't come up in polite conversations. Perhaps they're too embarrassed or fear that there might not actually be an answer. And so we end up with these deeply personal questions that go unanswered. What do we do when God seems silent? Why can we trust in the bodily resurrection of Jesus? How should Christians respond to spiritual darkness and paranormal activity? How can I know for sure the Bible is true and trustworthy? What should Christians understand about suicide and mental health? Why do we experience suffering and pain? I hope you'll join me as we discover answers to life's unanswered questions. Well, that DVD introduction looks at the scope of the ministry and the heart of the ministry of Jeremiah Johnston. As you heard from that clip, he is the president of Christian Thinkers Society and also associate professor of early Christianity. I don't know how somebody so young looking could be that, that into all of this, but it's absolutely amazing. We've discovered already an interaction from him and it has been reported to us he's known for his unique communication skills, his infectious love for people. One of his uh, passions is to equip churches and pastors and, as it were, all of us to give increasingly intellectually informed answers to the problems that we face when talking to people. Speaks in churches, presents in different contexts, magazines, written scholarly books and journals, involved in media programs, trying to help people connect more meaningfully with their faith and with Jesus Christ, whatever their background or their culture. He's a New Testament scholar. It's published for Oxford University Press and others as well. And uh, he now is traveling different parts of the world, presenting what he's learned to help us, prepare us, and to equip us. I have the social media information behind me, but what is also so interesting is that he's a family man. Well, he's got to be a family man. Married to Audrey, well, that's one thing, but he and they are parents to five children, including triplets. He is stressed, but not distressed, father of multiples. Here is Jeremiah Johnston. God bless you, bro. <laughs> Thank you, Pastor. Thank you so much. I bring you greetings from the nation of Texas, and I uh, want to just thank you so much for the opportunity that I have to communicate and to speak and have the privilege, really, of standing in this amazing pulpit at this wonderful church that is being tremendously used by God's Spirit to impact scores of lives. And I want to tell you what, um, having the privilege to minister 
and to meet pastors of all different varieties, churches from across the denominational spectrum. May I just say for a moment what an honor it has been for me to spend time with your pastor and the first lady of this church, Colin and Amanda Dye. You all are so blessed with your leadership here today. As someone who is in the work of training and equipping leaders, I'm very interested in men and women of God who stay faithful. We need examples for us that we can follow, that encourage us in our faith, that when we feel like giving up, we think about these individuals, and they're people that inspire us in our Christian walk. And Pastor Colin, when I think about you, you're very young looking, but being here for over two decades now, preaching and ministering faithful, and your sweet wife, Amanda, I want you to know I take it very seriously, the honor that I have to preach for you today, and it's truly an honor for me to be here with you all today at this wonderful church. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, he, he mentioned I'm an overstressed father of five. That's really the only introduction that we need. That, you just saw Lily Faith. We had the privilege to move to Oxford way back in 2009. You might remember during the swine flu epidemic, our daughter was just 12 weeks old and we came by faith and we moved to Oxford not knowing anyone, not knowing any Christians even. And I had the privilege to do my doctoral residency looking at ancient manuscripts, looking at the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how we can know, and hear me as I say this, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the best established fact of the ancient world. And that was my studies at the, my PhD levels. And I want to encourage you with the truth this morning. Jesus Christ, my friend, is not behind us in a tomb. He is before us in a throne. And he's even here among this church. And we are gathering on this Lord's Day, this Resurrection Sunday, to do what the church has done for the last 2,000 years. To pray, to lead songs and hymns and worshipful songs, and then to hear the Word of God so that we might be encouraged to fulfill the Great Commission. And from Oxford, holding a third century gospel fragment in my hand, the Holy Spirit spoke to me. How many of you know when God speaks to you? You listen. And God said, Jeremiah, I'm not giving you this experience in Oxford to be a reservoir of knowledge, but to a, a channel to my church. And I want you and your wife, Audrey, to start a ministry called Christian Thinkers Society. And our mission at Christian Thinkers Society is to train and inspire Christians, as Pastor said, to be thinkers and thinkers to be Christians. How many of you know a Christian thinker is not an oxymoron? We can love God, yes, with our heart, yes, with our soul, but we can also love God with all our mind. Little did I know, though, at the time, I, I should share a little bit of the backstory, Pastor, because Audrey and I were unable to become pregnant for five years. We really struggled with infertility and honestly, the silence of God, working and serving in the ministry and yet wondering why God was not hearing our prayers. And one year turned into two, two to three, three into four, four into five years of not hearing God's word. We could not become pregnant. God was silent to us. And we came to a point where we had to decide to trust God no matter what. Some of you are at that juncture today. And by the way, may I just say, since you know the end of the story, be careful what you pray for, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I could regale you with what it was like to have children in the neonatal intensive care unit for two months after they were born. Audrey carried the triplet boys for 33 weeks. And just to encourage you, because I just sense in my heart I should share this, 
When we had our first appointment with the maternal fetal medicine uh, expert doctor who specialized in multiples, we were actually told, and I, do me a favor and bring the picture up one more time, if you would, of the triplets. See the one on the right and the left, uh, that's Abel and the writer. Hold on, let me make sure I have them right, because the, the right and left are identical. I think that's Ryder on the right, actually, and Abel on the left. We were actually told, get this in the first five minutes of our appointment, you all need to do a fetal reduction. Now, friends, that is a euphemism for ending a life of the baby. And you know what's interesting? Audrey and I have been married 13 years, but we did not need to stop and have a conference about what the right decision was. Many years back, when we were unable to become pregnant, we had claimed it. We had stood on those 7,487 promises in God's word, and we had decided we were going to trust God no matter the cost. And we did not need to stop and huddle as a couple and say, do we make this decision? We've been told 80 different things could go wrong in this multiples pregnancy. We've been told Audrey's life could even be threatened by it. We made the decision to move forward. And you know what? None of those 80 plus things that were warned could happen ever did because God's people prayed and we serve a faithful God. I want to encourage you with that. That's not normally part of my unanswered tour, but I felt led today. So I could regale you about the experience in the NICU, but can I just share with you about trusting God? We have a big store in the United States. It's larger than like, is it ASDA? Am I remembering that right from my days at, at Oxford? We have this store called Costco in America. Have you heard about it? That you buy things in bulk. And the first time that I visit Costco, when we bring these multiples home, Audrey texts me, JJ, as she often calls me, pick up 700 diapers. Now, those are nappies at the Costco, would you? And I respond, oh, they must have a year-long special of diapers. She said, no, that will get us through the first month of our pregnancy. 700 diapers, ladies and gentlemen. So, yes, be careful what you pray for. <laughs> be careful what you trust God for. Uh, but that's our story of faith. And I'm here today standing on the shoulders of many men and women who have mentored me. So when I have the privilege to speak in a church like this with great leadership, you should be so grateful to God because there are churches all over the world who would love to poach your pastor from this place and to have his leadership. So thank you all. Jesus Christ never flinched when he was asked a question. I want you to think about Matthew chapter 22, and I want to encourage you to take notes throughout my message because you're going to hear things that you're going to want to jot down and remember. Jesus is teaching the Bible, and he is approached by the Pharisees, and the Pharisees want to trap him in Matthew 22. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? Do you remember this scene in your mind's eye from Matthew 22? Now, this was a trap question, ladies and gentlemen. There was no correct answer. 611 commandments to choose from, plus the two great commandments of the Old Testament. Over 600 options. What answer was Jesus going to give? And if you remember verse 37, can we bring our voices together and say what Jesus said? He answered the Pharisees, you shall love the Lord your God, I can't hear you, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Say that word mind out loud one more time. Mind. Dianoia in Greek. This is a fascinating word in the original Greek. What does it mean to love God with all our mind? Many believers love God with their heart. They love God with their emotions and their passions. But my friend, we have stopped short of loving God with all our mind. 
And the scripture says that our salvation is so holistic that it will penetrate every fabric of our life, our soul, our spirit, but also our body to where we should dedicate our mind. And in Greek, that's the decision-making process, the reasoning. We literally love God through the filter of our mind. Here's my question for you this morning at Kensington Temple, and for those of you joining us by streaming all over the world, are you loving God with all your mind today? Have you dedicated your decision process to Jesus Christ to where when you're in that moment with a doctor or you're in that temptation moment, businessman, on a business trip away from your family, you don't have to stop and check your ethics because you've already made a decision to love God with all your mind. And yet many haven't. Many Christians have been lulled to sleep. They've never gotten beyond their second grade education theologically. And so when we hear a skeptic or an atheist bring assaults against our faith, we're not prepared for the answer. And yet Jesus has so much to say about loving God with all our mind. He says in Philippians, let this mind, Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was what? Also in what? Christ Jesus. Do you have a Jesus-centric mind this morning? Christian Thinker Society as a ministry, we're on a global tour with the Museum of the Bible called the Unanswered Tour. When we began Christian Thinker Society, I started my ministry literally from a table. No one gave me my ministry. I was just following God's call on my life. And you know what, Audrey, and it's amazing, man, how God will speak to us through our wives, amen? Audrey said, Jeremiah, let's develop a service where, all, where people can have permission to ask any question they have. And they don't need to be afraid of the questions. And so I said, okay, and, and do I like return to answer these? No, no, Jeremiah, you're going to answer the questions live as soon as you get them in the audience. And by the way, that's kind of a nerve-wracking thing to do if you've never done it before, to take questions live from complete strangers. And yet we started to simply say, text us your questions. The questions would roll up on the screen behind me while I was speaking and communicating. And I was fascinated not just at the amount of questions we received, but the nature of the questions. By the way, would you like to hear the first question that I was ever text in a live service in 2009? Jeremiah, and by the way, I'm one of the few speakers that encourages you to switch your phones on while I'm speaking, because I want you to interact with the message. Jeremiah, if God created everything and called it good, Genesis 131, why can't I smoke pot? That was the first question I was asked. I answer that, by the way, on my YouTube channel. But the questions took on an altogether more serious note. In 6,000 text message questions later, from churches across the spectrum, from Baptist, Lutheran, United Methodist, Foursquare, Pentecostal, Charismatic, non-denominational universities across Canada and the United States, I began to notice, friends, there were certain questions that were recurrent no matter which environment I was speaking in. And they were not the kind of questions we discussed 53 miles from here in Oxford. They were questions of an altogether different variety. Questions like the paranormal. What do I do with spiritual darkness? There's so much confusion. Questions about evil, suffering, and pain. What, what do I do when I have a, a crisis in my life? And then, of course, my number two question that I've been asked was the silence of God. Are you here this morning and perhaps you feel as if God has unfriended you? You feel like God has perhaps put you in timeout. He's unfollowed you. I want to encourage you, if you're feeling that way this morning, you're in a very good place, actually, because God's silence is not equivalent with God's absence. I want you to write this down. 
There are 8,810 promises in God's word, just any kind of promise, not necessarily from God to us, but any promise. I making a promise to someone else. Do you know how many promises there are from God to you? If you were to go through and tick out every single one of them, from Genesis to Revelation, 7,487 promises from God to you today in his word. In fact, there are a thousand promises in the book of Jeremiah alone, a thousand promises in Isaiah, a thousand promises in Ezekiel. In fact, one Bible scholar went so far as to say all 2,461 verses in the Psalms is a promise from God. And yet, if we're being really transparent, and by the way, we should be transparent and authentic in church. You didn't have to be perfect when you walked through those doors this morning. I certainly wasn't. Just forgiven, not perfect. You know what's amazing? We cannot equate the promises of God's word with the problems in our life, and he can seem silent. I was there for five years, as I already mentioned, struggling with infertility. You know how personal that is. And yet, what Audrey and I did was we began to notice there were men and women in the scriptures whom God set apart to use mightily. And by the way, ordinary women, not super, no, not robots and not superheroes, ordinary women and men just like us here today. And yet, they went through deep periods of God's silence. If you were to go home and study Genesis 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, all the way through Genesis 18, you get seven chapters a story about the life of Abraham and Sarah. Now, Bible students, think with me for a moment. Do you remember how old Abraham was when God called him from modern-day Iraq to follow him no matter the cost? Now, Abraham was a pagan. He probably worshipped at the ziggurats. You probably have seen those in, over here in the British Library, pictures of such. And God calls Abraham, and if you remember, he is 75 years of age when God calls him to follow him through Haran, that is modern-day Syria, into the Promised Land. By the way, when Abraham and Sarah said yes to God's call, that was a 1,500-mile journey to the Promised Land. And this was a culture based on agriculture. He left behind his family heritage, his progeny, his lineage, his economy, his family business. He sacrificed it all to follow this God, Yahweh, whose name means, I am the one who is. I need no name because I am. And God and Abraham follows God and Sarah. And do you remember what God promised Abraham and Sarah a child? And yet when you look through the chronology, God is silent. They do not have a child. Chapter 13, 14, 15, 10 years has passed. You can look at the chronology. All the way up to Genesis 17, Abraham and Sarah have turned skeptical. And we don't have time to discuss how he went man's route instead of God's route. And he settled for man's blessing instead of God's blessing. God yet looks beyond that. And in Genesis 17, Yahweh appears to him and says, I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. And he starts extolling Abraham with his greatness. And do you remember what Abraham does? And if you're here today and you're skeptical, or you're doubting, or you're at the end of your rope by faith, hear this for a moment. Do you, hear, do you remember what the father, one of the fathers of our faith did, and his wife Sarah? They begin to do what in God's face? Laugh. <laughs> and do you remember what God says to Abraham? That's interesting, you're laughing at my promise. You're going to name your son Yitzhak in Hebrew. What does that mean? Isaac, laughter. Every time you call after your little boy, you're going to remember you laughed at my promises. 
And yet, hear this today, God was faithful. He did not leave Abraham and Sarah, and he will not leave you today in, in, his, in this silence. We could go further. I mean, I think of Joseph, Genesis 37. Joseph is sold in a human trafficking incident. You know the rest of the story. Eventually, Potiphar owns him. You know what happens there. He ends up in an Egyptian prison to where at the end of Genesis 40, there is a cryptic passage, friends. He is forgotten. You might feel forgotten by God today. Do you know what? Joseph kept trusting God, even though this, the Bible actually says he was forgotten at the end of Genesis 40. Do you know why God wanted to take Joseph into transformation, that silence, to triumph. The only way he could get into the king's palace was to go through the prison. And friends, you need to hear that promise today. Will, the, the real question is, I mean, as I study, in my area of specialty, as the pastor eloquently said, is the area of, of gospels, historical Jesus studies. Do you know the only thing that upset Jesus was lack of faith? That, that was the only way you could get on Jesus' nerves, was to simply not trust him. I think of the father in Mark chapter 9. Do you remember the scene in Mark chapter 9, the transfiguration? Um, if you've seen the Twilight movies, and forgive me for using a secular example, but I like to do that. I use movies a lot with my students. Remember the Twilight vampire movies? Edward Cullen you know, goes out into the sunlight, and if you remember, his body is shimmering like diamonds. Something much greater than that occurred at the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. He literally showed what he was like in all of his glory. And do you remember the disciples? They wanted to camp out there. They didn't want to leave. Do you remember they're coming down the mountain in Mark chapter 9? And by the way, R.T. France and other Markan scholars believe that Jesus' body is still glistening as he's walking down the mountain. Otherwise, why would people start running to him? Can you imagine seeing this man shining coming down the mountain? And what is the first thing that Jesus encounters? And this is important for us because I believe, having studied the paranormal, anytime God works in our life, Satan, the devil, the evil one, immediately works in counterattack. Jesus is not just, has not even gone to the base of the mountain yet. The transfiguration has just happened moments ago. And he encounters a boy who is possessed by a devil. And the disciples could not cast it out. Do you recall this scene in your mind in Mark 9? And we call it in Texas talking trash. Do you know what I mean by this? Talking smack. I don't know if you know what I mean by this. Uh, you know, instigating things. And the only time I see Jesus talk a little smack is in verses 22 to 24. Do you remember that the father is so put out by his son's illness and the ways in which his son has been demonized? He looks at Jesus, the creator of the universe, and he says... And by the way, body probably still glistening. So we see the context. We always have to read the Bible in context. Read the Bible with first century eyes. Teacher, if you can do anything, will you do it? And do you remember how Jesus responds in verse 23? If I can. If I can. The, the, the dad responds, Lord, I believe. Help my what? Help my unbelief. All he needed was a spark of faith, and Jesus worked. So today, if you're struggling with the silence of God, this is, again, my number two question. You must know that God's silence is real. I experienced it. It's biblical. That's okay. It's common. You're in good company. And my friends, it is not always a bad thing. 
It is amazing how we grow in those moments of silence. I point out in the Bible study version of Unanswered that Henry Blackaby, the author of the Bible study that many of us have done, Experiencing God, thousands of churches have done this Bible study. Do you know Henry Blackaby discusses the fact, and again, he wrote Experiencing God, and yet often he struggled with God's silence. And he said he would first go through his sin checklist because Without a doubt, there are times that sin can separate our fellowship with God. But that's not always the case. Do I believe in God's chastisement? Yes. But don't forget the scene in John chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. Do you remember the boy born blind? The disciples approach Jesus and say, Who sinned, this boy or his parents, that he was born blind? Therefore, it must always be sin. And do you know what Jesus said in verse 3? Neither. He did not sin. His parents did not sin. But that the power of God can be manifest among you. So it's not always due to sin. God wants to take you from transformation to triumph. Stand on those promises today. We are living in exciting times to be a follower of Jesus. 70,000 people a day are coming to faith in Christ. Did you know that? My friend Richard Bauckham, right up the street in Cambridge, just came out with a book on Jesus. 70,000 a day. Are, the, the faith has never been stronger. But guess what? The majority of those 70,000 coming to faith in Christ per day are not from Western countries. We need men and women of God in the United Kingdom, in the United States, and in Western countries to stand up and say, I'm going to have a thinking faith. Friends, the church has become so irrelevant. The church is seen, and this book is seen as any old dusty book. And yet, this book has the very words of life, eternal life. But we have to know how to think and articulate it. Most of us, if we're really honest, we're just two or three unanswered questions away from leaving our own faith. I know, but in every, seat, in every chair in this packed auditorium to this morning, there sits unanswered questions. The why, where is God when, what's happened, I'm disappointed. And we serve a, a God, and the Christianity is the only faith that can answer the deepest, darkest questions in our heart. If you're here today, you need to receive that. And yet John Lennox, my, my, I have the privilege to have my dad with me at church today, Dr. Jerry Johnston, who's doing a documentary. He's been filming with thinkers, skeptics alike. Recently, he's in Oxford. He's filming John Lennox, the mathematician scientist from University of Oxford. And he asked John Lennox, why have so many Britons left the church? Now, the pastor could correct me on my statistics, but I think it's somewhere around two, only 2% 2 of Britons attend church with any regularity. Some studies say under 5%. Past, Professor Lennox, why is it that 95% of Britons no longer attend church? Do you know how he responded? And by the way, this is on our Facebook page, this video clip. So I want to encourage you to connect with me on social media. I want you to see these video assets and use them in your Bible study, your own Christian life. Professor Lennox looks at the camera and he said, let me quote the BBC. The BBC did a poll of why Britons had left the church. Do you know what the number one answer was? The church will not answer my unanswered questions. The church will not answer my unanswered questions. No wonder Lee Strobel wrote in the foreword of my book, he's a good buddy of mine, he's just had a movie come out in America, The Case for Christ. My path to atheism was paved with unanswered questions. He grew up in a, in a home that was, don't ask, just believe. Some of you might have grown up in a home like that, and I want to encourage you, there was no question that was off limits to Jesus. Jesus is omniscient, meaning he's all-knowing. But do you know how many questions Jesus asks in the Gospels? 
If you were to go up and count, and by the way, when I say Gospels, I mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you were to count up each and every question, Jesus asks over a hundred questions in the Gospels. It's a great evangelism technique. You're in this evangelism season, in this season of defending the faith. Individuals respond so much better to a question than an assertion. Let's do the model of Jesus, but let's know something about our faith. And yet we're living in a day and age when skeptics have taken the microphone. And the passion that I have in this global tour is to raise up Christians by God's Holy Spirit who are like the Israelite leaders in 1 Chronicles 12:32, the leaders of Israel from the tribe of Issachar, men and women who understood the times, they knew what Israel should do. Do you understand the times? Do you know what we should do as followers of Jesus? The problem that I have and the frustration that I experience with many followers of Jesus is we have our heads in the sand. We don't even know how people without Jesus think. We can't even remember the last time we had an intelligent, informed conversation with someone outside the faith. And we've grown so isolated. And we are not going to reach people with that kind of attitude. Let me evidence it this way. The message of culture is this. First, there is no God stupid. There is no God stupid. I'm finishing the edits for my book, Unanswered, Lasting Truth for Trending Question. I didn't share the rest of it. We aggregated the top, out of all 6,000 questions, we aggregated those and did a book to equip and arm the church. I'm in a motel, and in this motel room, they only have CNN, the cable news network. And guess what? I'm watching this show, Anderson Cooper 360. Have you seen this show that's on every night in America? He's interviewing the ardent atheist Richard Dawkins. And they began to discuss on international CNN news, Anderson Cooper 360, that Christians believe in things like talking animals, talking snakes, talking donkeys, the creation, bodies coming back from the dead. And at one point in this live interview, Anderson cocks his head back and begins laughing derisively. <laughs> Professor Dawkins, how could anyone be so stupid? Friends, do you know who he was talking about? He was talking about us stupid Christians. Now I want to ask you a question. Are you going to let someone talk about your faith that way? We are if we remain silent though. We are if we can't bring an answer to even the most pedestrian unanswered questions in our own heart and life. We have to dig into those. The second interesting thing that happened, and I'll again harken back to Dad's documentary, and again you can see this on our social media channels. Dad is in Oxford again interviewing Peter Atkins one of Dawkins' best friends. 42-year lecture of chemistry, Lincoln College. Now, you know Lincoln College is where John Wesley went to school. They have a bust in the quadrangle of Wesley. And on camera, he is asked, Professor Atkins, what do you feel about the fact that your lectures on critical thinking have been dismantling the faith of your students for four decades? He responds without flinching, it gives me great delight. What do you think of people that invite Jesus in their heart, Professor Atkins? I think those people are mentally ill. Friends, I speak as a university professor to professors. Most professors are nihilists. That's a Latin term meaning nothing. Uh, we, send our, we raise up our students and our children in the church. We send them off to university. And many of them, their faith is dismantled by these irresponsible remarks. We have to let them know they can ask us any question, that we're going to be there to answer them, that we're going to be there to help them through their doubts and disbelief. 
So what is the number one question that I've been asked out of 6,000? This one stunned me. It stunned our ministry. The number one question that I've been asked relates to suicide and mental health in the Christian life. I have a video that I wanna show you. It's a very short clip. And I'm on a, I do, as Pastor said, I, I have the privilege of speaking out sometimes in media. And I'm reg, a regular guest on the Janet Partial Radio Network. She broadcasts her shows syndicated in the United States. And we talked a little bit about the unanswered book, but my favorite aspect of the show is when we simply take unanswered questions live. Now, keep in mind, I want to set the context for this clip. This is a Christian radio broadcast. No one was going to make fun of this woman for a question, and yet she phones in, and I want you to listen to the first few seconds of the clip. She will not say her name. She is so embarrassed by the situation of her life and the unanswered question, she does not even feel comfortable to say her first name. She asked me about an experience of suicide in her family's life. I want you to hear how I was able to answer it because here's the problem. The title of my message today is, Why Do We Go to Google Instead of God's Word? Do you know that bad information is just a few clicks away on Google? And as we remain silent, unfortunately, we give voice to people that do what's called eisegesis. They pick a verse out of context, and they make it say whatever they want it to say, and it destroys people's spiritual lives. It brings a pharisaical, judgmental spirit into the church that never existed there in its original intent. So let's watch this clip, and I want you to see how, I want to invite you into my world, because this, this week, and through this evangelism series you're doing, I want you to be prepared to answer those interesting questions when they come your way. Let's watch this clip. Um, thank you for taking my call. I just wondered if you could address mental illness and suicide. We lost our son 10 months ago. And he had a relationship with the Lord as a teenager. He was in his early 20s and had undetected mental illness. So I just wonder if you could address, are those people that have passed away and died this way with the Lord? Thank you. Oh, gosh. God bless you for that call. Thank you so much for your boldness and your courage to call in. And right now, God is using you to minister to hundreds and thousands of other people who are struggling with this question. I want you to know, anonymous caller, this is the number one question that I've been asked about suicide and mental illness. And I want to first speak specifically yes, yes. to your questions. Your son is with Jesus Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. Romans 8 says that. 2 Corinthians 5, 8, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And this is why it is so important. We have right theology and we understand scriptural teachings. There's a false teaching out there that says, first off, an authentic Christian can never be depressed. False. Have you read the Bible lately? Oh. An authentic Christian can never <laughs> struggle. False. Have you read the Bible lately? And uh, Jesus literally said, my soul is utterly downcast in Matthew 14, 34 and 35. I feel like death. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I know I'm preaching right now, Janet. The apostle Paul says, I have the sentence of death within me right now. I don't even want to go on living. Janet, 25% of our pastors right now in the United States are struggling with chronic depression. And so what I love about that terrible statistic is it is bringing these taboo subjects of mental illness into sharper focus. So suicide Amen. and mental illness, it's not only common in our congregation, it has become common among our pastors. When I was finishing the final edit for Unanswered Lasting Truth for Trending Questions, I kid you not, 10 miles from where I was finishing the book, a pastor, 35 years here in Texas, very well known, took his life. 
Rick Warren's son, Matthew, took his life. Yes. The very first funeral I ever did as a young pastor, and I just love it how seminary does not train you for certain things. The first funeral I ever did was a completed suicide of a lady named Kim. I won't share her last name in our church. And just to encourage our caller, she blew away all these stereotypes. She was there on Sunday morning. She was there on Sunday night. She was there for Wednesday night prayer meeting. She had just been voted teacher of the year in the large public schools uh, in, the, in the public school district in Kansas City. And one day in a bout of incredible depression, she went out and she took her life. And so I want to encourage you, nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. Your son is with the Lord right now. But you know what? There's some things that we need to understand as a church on how to speak to the mental illnesses and the invisible illnesses plaguing those in our congregations. Friends. Suicide is not the unforgivable sin. There is only one sin that God cannot and will not forgive. Do you know what that sin is? The sin of rejecting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That is the only sin God can't forgive. Now, I would never obviously condone suicide. It's a terrible act. There's a body of literature that just the havoc it brings, not only on immediate family, but generations, curses. And yet, leaders define reality. And a reality exists in the church today that 48% of the people who attend our church will themselves experience mental illness at some point in their own life. 62 million Americans right now are suffering with mental illness. Do you know what the average onset age is of mental illness in the United Kingdom? The average age mental illness begins to pop up, 14 years of age. We need to be present as a church. I was meeting with someone yesterday after I spoke and they say, the Bible doesn't have anything to say about mental illness. And I said, excuse me, the Bible has a lot to say about mental health and loving God with our mind. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We bring our mind and we renew it every day. And yet, as I said, when the, but what's the reality? We define reality. Churches have been silent on this issue, and that's why I so applaud your pastor's vision and leadership to host a service like this, where we say at Kensington Temple, there's no question that's all out of bounds or off limits. The God, all truth is God's truth, and God's truth penetrates every question. And if you're here this, this afternoon, or if you're watching by streaming, and you're struggling with one of the associated mental illnesses, bipolar, borderline personality disorder. I had lunch just a few weeks ago with Jonathan Sandus, Winston Churchill's great-grandson. Of course, his grandmother, Diana, Churchill's daughter, took her life. He said that Churchill struggled with borderline personality disorder his entire life. When I think about Abraham Lincoln, a man who was on suicide watch for three years, and yet he had this experience with God after he becomes president that lifted him out of the doldrums of depression. Don't tell me God can't use you in the midst of your anxiety or depression. He's right there with you in the midst of it, giving you hope and giving you hope through this church. And yet I was, in, I was speaking at a women's conference actually was at Maybe Center in ORU in early March. And I showed that clip, I now show it in almost every event. And a woman approached me, she was trembling. She said, Jeremiah, my husband was a pastor for 14 years and unfortunately, in a bout of chronic depression, he took his life. And the community of faith where I was in came around us and do you know what they said to me? They took a verse and they did what I said, eisegesis. They actually pulled out Isaiah 57.1 and said, your husband is in hell. And she said, I've been living with that for years. And today, for the first time, I have hope. 
Another woman, same event. She said, Jeremiah, I left the church four years ago. I've decided today to come back to God. I was on duty. I'm a police officer. I was on duty the night my brother took his life. Friends, there is hope for you today. You are not a second-rate, second-tier Christian if you're struggling with problems of your mind. Why is it as a church that if someone has a broken leg or a terminal illness, we'll come around and pray for them, but if they have a struggle in their mind, it's like we can't step back fast enough. We have to stop the silence. We have to stop the shame and exclusion. We have to show up and be present. I'm a baseball fan, American baseball. Babe Ruth said it's hard to beat someone who never gives up. We need to be known as a church as never giving up on someone in our congregation and not being a judgmental, smug Pharisee either. And friends, I want to encourage you today. Thank you. I, I hope I get this right. Did you see the story that came out on May 3rd? I, I have a picture that I think brings this sermon to a close quite nicely. Every time I look at this photograph, it brings me to tears because it is a beautiful picture, in my opinion, of what the church needs to be. Did you see this story? Now, am I getting right? Is it Golders Green? Is that North London? Am I saying that right? Did you hear about this story? This was the actual headline. Good Samaritans hold on to man for two hours after he threatens to jump off bridge. Now, I want you to keep this photo up for a moment because... You, have to, you must know, none of these people know each other before this moment. They're strangers, ladies and gentlemen. Some are going to work, some are going to study, some are going to the store, and they see a young man who has decided that he doesn't want to live anymore. And by the way, many of us here today, often we need to be saved from ourselves. Did you know that? One of the most important prayers I can pray today is, God, save me from myself. I am a wicked man. My heart is desperately wicked. I'm in need of the redemption of Jesus Christ. And you know what's amazing? Even though this man had thought he had come to the end of the line, he hadn't. Strangers, I see someone's arms clasp around his legs here. Somebody, if you can see it, has actually grabbed his belt loops, holding him on by his belt strap. Another happened to have a yellow rope they've tied around. Do you see that? Can you think of a better picture of what the church of Jesus Christ needs to be for anyone today who's suffering or hurting? We're going to save you from yourself. We're going to come around you and we're not going to let go. And if it takes two hours for EMTs to get here, I will stand here two hours with you. Where are you at in the story today? You might be someone who is like that man on the bridge. You just need to be saved from yourself. You need someone to come around you and say, I believe in you. Or perhaps you're like a stranger. You're going about your business. And aren't you glad someone interrupted their schedule to stop on that bridge? So often we miss God because we're so busy. So where are you at in the story? Will you show up and be a present in someone's life? Or will you say transparently to God and to the leaders of this church, help me. Help me find answers. Will you leave this service and begin a new walk of faith, loving God with all your mind? Will you leave here today saying, I'm going to stand on those 7,437 promises? I hope you'll say yes to all those questions.